1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
2: Hi there. So drugs, think of the children. It's a cliche, it's a mantra. This is Stop and Search, Episode 8. Here we go. Thanks for joining us guys I can't believe we're on number 8 already And this one, I, I really do enjoy it. I know I say it every time But I really do enjoy this one Because as I stipulate numerous times throughout the episode It's the most non-drug policy centric one that we've had It's normal guests If that makes any sense I'm using quotation marks behind the mic so who have we got? we got Mark Grist, who is a battle rapper, spoken word artist, poet. If you Google his name and look at his body of work, it's so, so well crafted. And I really do recommend that you check out his work, especially one that he did with battle rapping Scroobius Pip, our network boss. It's just pure funny. It's, it's quite fantastic. Um, we also have Dr. Chris Van Tulkin, who you'd know from BBC One, He's done The Doctor That Gave Up Drugs, he is just a television doctor aficionado, really nice guy as well. Uh, he does a lot of work for children's television, um, just a really fantastic intellect, uh, perfect person and example to use to get stripped down information across. How can we get it across to layman? how can we get, get it across to children? And, as ever, we have Neil Woods, uh, the UK's chairman, uh, the author of Good Cop, Bad War, which please go out and buy if you've not read it already. Um, He's there to give us some uh, expert punditry, I guess we can say. So let's go straight into the episode. This is Drugs. Think of the children. Stop and search episode eight on the Distraction Pieces Network, brought to you by ACAST. We're joined tonight by... I'd say probably we're lucky with what we're doing with the podcast because we get some really good guests and a lot of them are still tied to drug policy reform in some sort of way. But tonight we're getting outside the box. We're doing two people that aren't remotely involved in drug policy reform. And that's a good thing for us because it just means that we're going to have a a bit of a different conversation because half the battle is not preaching converted. So... First off, we've got a viral spoken word artist. He battle-wrapped our network boss, Scroobius Pip. If you Google Mark Grist versus Scroobius Pip, you'll see a four-way battle between the two of them. And also, I think it was like five million hits that you had for when you battle rapped one of your students. Yeah, was oh, it wasn't my Oh, he wasn't. But uh, So if you Google uh, Mark Grist versus Blizzard, I think it is, isn't it? Five million hits, and it's genuinely fantastic. And it hit the news, you probably recognise it. So give it up for Mr Mark Grist. <laughs> and I better give you a microphone. Also joining us, if you had been watching BBC One, you'd know the doctor that gave up drugs. But the funny thing is, is that he tried them previous to that, with our chairman here, Neil, on Channel 4 Drugs Live, and they got stoned together on live TV, legally. How did that happen? Anyway, we can discuss that in a minute. Let's give it up for Dr. Van Tilken. Thank so thanks for joining us, guys. Like I said, this is probably the most off-the-beaten track that we've had in regards to, not drug policy novices, because that almost doesn't sound right, but people that aren't necessarily involved in the subject. And the reason that we invited them is that, to me, there's a lot of subjects in drug law reform. It's not just a case of we need to legalise all drugs, it's about information distribution. It's about how do we connect with our vulnerable demographics. And that's why we invited Mark Griss, because he used to be a teacher.
3: Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. This... Yeah, uh Yeah, that's right. Uh, secondary school uh, English teacher in Peterborough for about five years, uh, and head of uh, year as well. Which means you spend about 95% of your time with the same five percent of your. So year group I, I keep getting. I totally
2: don't envy you for that. I mean, what age groups would they have been then that you were Uh with?
3: So it was year eight and year nine, so uh, 12-year-olds to 14-year-olds, um, which is quite. Uh, it's a difficult time for a lot of teenagers. I mean, that's that's really when uh, they're really trying to. They they kind of really just started to work out at secondary school how they can hurt each other the most like like in all honesty that's like and and they're also becoming the most self-aware and self-conscious at that point in time and they haven't got um because they haven't taken optional studies at any point for their GCSEs they've not made any real active decisions in their time at school so they're kind of in many ways kind of powerless and like and, and so it means you get an awful lot of internalized kind of like stress and, 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 and poor behaviour to each other and stuff.
2: That's really interesting. I've never actually thought of it that way, that that is the developing age, isn't it, from childhood into adult?
3: Oh, it's so, yeah, in school, in a lot of schools, it's definitely considered that year eight is the the year that you're dealing with the most unpleasant behaviour between students to each other.
2: And if you're of my age and probably Neil's age, we what's, what was it in our money? It was kind of like third year, first year, that's the way I used to measure my school years. It wasn't year f- eight, I, that kind of language I completely escapes me. So what, in our terms, for the older listeners, what age group is?
3: So at secondary school, that would be uh, second year, secondary school, and that's third it. year. Cool. Secondary school. So just prior, they've finished with me as they're taking their GCSE options.
2: And prior to that, is yeah. there...
3: Uh, they get 14 when they leave, you. Yeah.
2: Is there any drug information prior to that? Because I don't know what they do in schools now, I must admit. Um, I mean,
3: there's some very, there is some very broad stuff, like in the sense that you'll get young young people talking about, um, talking in, in very broad terms about drugs and kind of the impacts that drugs can have. I know that year seven we did do some kind of unit on it, but um, I mean the thing you've got separately is everything's broken down into teaching and learning. Um, points like so. If you're a teacher, like I, I was ahead of year, I could never be ahead of subject. Um, at the same time as being ahead of year, you're only allowed allowed to have one teaching and learning responsibility. And more and more things have happened in relation to teaching and learning units. And the issue you've got is kind of citizenship stuff and PSHE, the kind of things that were cover drug control. Those things have been removed. They're not considered. Like they're not, they're not kind of like protected essential components of teaching and learning. So those things have kind of been buffered into like tutor time sessions, which are often run by teachers who are like really stressed out and really uh, trying to work out their teaching and learning responsibilities. So in many ways, a lot of the kind of PSHE stuff, I'd say a lot of the time in schools is is really done on the back foot.
2: So there's no prescription for this, then. There's no way of Dealing with drug information. It's all pretty much at all.
3: I mean, you're expected to cover it and talk through it at different points, but a lot of the time, the person who's... You'll have someone who has a teaching and learning responsibility for overseeing that whole project across all schools, like the wider PSHE programme, but a lot of the time, those that responsibility isn't a particularly necessarily, like, well-paid responsibility. It's often given to a junior member of staff who maybe doesn't have that much authority with older members of staff who don't want to do what they say. So you tend to find that it's certainly not... I mean, compared to, like... Science or English or maths it's pretty far down
2: So would you presumably be beholden to the opinion of the person that's teaching, given that there's no real syllabus for
3: this? Uh, Slightly, I mean I actually think there's an awful lot of discussion uh, which I think is really good within um, the PSHE sessions that I kind of witnessed or I saw going on in schools or that I led myself Um, there was an awful lot of chance to discuss and talk about stuff which I think is really good but Regularly, I had teenagers saying to me that they felt when adults communicate with them about, uh, about drugs, they essentially, they said they present it like they, they care about our opinion, but there's always like an underlying final point they want to get to so and they feel that ad, adults have just got very good at kind of like pretending they're having like an honest conversation but it will always wrap up with a kind of yeah but drugs are bad right like and that's that's kind of like the way it's really going to cope ending up to so they feel a lot that it can be propaganda
2: and that's pretty much sums up my childhood education from the 80s it was just say no and i imagine neil pretty much the same with you it was the same principle probably even before that there wasn't just say no campaign not to out you as being old or anything, but it, it it was rudimentary at best, wasn't it?
4: Grange Hill, I think, was my drugs education. Z- Z- Zamo overdosed, overdosing on heroin. Uh, that's, that's all I remember for, as a, as an educational point from my childhood. Really,
2: that's the first mention of Grange Hill ever on this podcast. So. Well done, Neil. And, and Dr. Chris, is it right to call you Dr. Chris? Just Chris Chris. <laughs> it's one of those things. It's, it's nice to have a doctor here today. Right. My children's
5: BBC name is Dr. Chris.
2: Dr. Chris. And that's what, that's what I was coming to actually. You've done lots of things. First, BAFTA as well that we've ever had in the building as well for Operation Ouch, I think it was. Yeah, um, So you have got experience in delivering information to the younger demographics. How do you go about that? And I know obviously you didn't get into drug education on CBeebies, which just doesn't (laughs) quite happen yet. But but is there a difference in the way, can you get around not patronising children? If that makes sense.
5: Well, you can't get away with patronising children. And uh, so we, we, we so on the, so I present Operation Ouch, uh, this doesn't quite look like the demographic that has six to 12-year-old kids. Maybe some of you do, but it's, it's a show that's run for six years on Children's BBC. And, uh, and it's for six to 12-year-old kids, and it's about medicine and how amazing your body is. And we, every year we try and push it a bit further, I guess, in terms of disgust and horror and how much shit and vomit we can actually show on the show. And we try and push the limits of, of, uh, of what we can illustrate medically. So we try and aim it at postgraduate doctors. So my, my idea for every programme is that you could show it to a room full of medical professors and they would all learn at least one thing and probably more from any show. So we don't patronise the kids, but we do try and deal with ticklish things. So uh, this year we made um, half an hour on puberty, which was the first time I think that anyone's managed to say scrotum testicles or pubic hair on children's BBC um, which was a, a kind of weird, those things in and of themselves weren't a challenge although it was interesting to try and do it in a way that was, was comfortable um, but we haven't got hold of drugs and I, th- I, I, I think from dealing with uh, from from not dealing with from presenting with and, and interacting with kids who are 10 that is the age that you or even earlier that is the age they're starting to be curious and advanced about it and probably so I present on Children's BBC really CBeebies is when you should start to be talking about puberty and drugs should be I think 7, 8, 9, 10 year olds that's when they're starting to become curious and aware and, and I think the kind of honesty that Leaper are pretty good at is, is what's needed.
2: Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? What age is a good age to start talking about drugs? Uh, has anybody got the any answer for that?
3: I mean, we one thing we've found with a lot of some of our students, and also I, I work a lot with hip-hop MCs on on projects, and, and um, a lot of students I've worked with and a lot of MCs I've worked with uh, have dealt, you know, like at the age of 13, 14, you know, like it's not... Often you find that when you're discussing things with students, I think teachers are starting to realise that actually a lot of the students in the room have a much, uh, already have quite a lot of knowledge about that world. Uh, like, about like the, the workings of the, the drug industry for a start and about the impact of certain drugs on people because they've either seen it at home with their, with their families or they've seen it um, at parties that they've kind of snuck into where they've seen older students doing stuff or they've done things themselves. Um, but, yeah, it's... I think, I think a lot, lot of teachers are often quite surprised when they start teaching it for the first time that they actually probably know a lot less. I
2: bet that's really awkward when a teacher does have less information than what the students already know. Well,
3: you've normally got a sheet, right? And that's what you're kind of trying to really? get through what is over on the sheet, I imagine.
2: And this is something you talk about in the book, isn't it, Neil, is that you've seen pretty much essentially youngsters and children get turned into some brutal adults purely through, through drug the drug trade but also the lack of information within that
4: yeah absolutely I mean um, organised crime recruit from teenagers and that's getting younger and younger and the, the trouble is once the teenagers are involved in it then they have to adapt because if they want to survive in that world they have to follow their team ethos and that is to be as aggressive and scary as possible but interestingly that ITV Broken news story about children being manipulated. It's called "Going Country," and if anyone's seen that, it's a really good piece of journalism. Um, and it's broke from a from a Home Office report that organised crime groups are increasingly using children and using them to transport the drugs between major towns because the organised crime groups getting bigger. So it's a really interesting thing, and, it, and it's something which, which which really needs to break into the into the news more. But an interesting thing you said. Mark about teachers being surprised, um, and and I've observed that from pe- from people I've spoken to as well. But is this clear evidence that the next generation of of kids have got wider access to drugs than the previous? Ones?
3: Certain areas, absolutely. I mean, I was working with a, a good friend of mine today, who's a, an incredibly talented hip hop MC, and I was talking about coming on this, and he was t- he said it's he's like shotting is just what you do when you. He was like when I was thirteen. 14, it's just what you would do. And I didn't know anyone in his area of London who didn't do it. Um, you know, he just just didn't, just as you'll probably find some people whose children go to private school, and that's entirely normal because they don't know anyone whose children don't go to private school. It's, it's exactly that kind of, that kind of, kind of setup. Um, but, yeah, I mean, he, I was talking to him about it, and, I, yeah, it really got me thinking as well because I think we were in an area where there were... I definitely... We had a lot of students who were engaged in it but there's certainly like areas where I mean by, by 14 year old, by the time you're 14 years old you are, you are, I think a lot of people are very well versed with the effects of drugs on individuals they know at least.
2: And I think Chris is you're probably the best person to know what happens with the distribution of information to a lot of age demographics. How do we do that? How, can we learn anything from sex education in the way that we presented that recently in terms of harm reduction? If we give notions of the fact that teenagers will experiment with sexual practices to some degree or another, are we able to have that same similar conversation with drugs yet?
5: I think, I mean, I'm wearing quite a few weird hats here, right? So I'm, I'm a children's television presenter, but I'm also a doctor and I'm also a scientist, so I work most of my time in a lab now. and also present on adult television, and I'm also a, a drug user, um, In terms of, uh, illegally, on television, several times I've used Class A drugs in in kind of responsible ways, either in remote anthropological settings or, you know, with Neil on on Cannabis Live on on Channel 4. And um, so I think I sort of come at this from a few weird, different perspectives. And I think our, our particular angle with Operation Ouch is to deliver... Um, nuanced fact as hard as we can and try and not stray into moral judgment. So, when we talk to kids about obesity, there is actually no, there's almost no eat your greens. There's no you shouldn't be overweight. There's no you should be thin or you shouldn't be fat. Um, and we tr- I think we would have the same approach to drugs. Drugs is just too ticklish to do it because you can, I can I, and I ostentatiously will have only one message about drugs, which is drugs are illegal. And you should not take them for that reason, because being criminalised is probably the most unhealthy thing that can happen to anyone. You would be better off smoking for a long time than you would spending time in jail.
2: How would you respond to that then, Neil? Because that, that is something that we crops up every so often. Isn't
4: it? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a great point about... Um, I mean, that we often say that in many cases, the worst thing that a drug can do to you is get caught. With it, you know, the crim- going into the criminal justice system is an, an appalling um, thing that can happen to to young people. It really can devastate some lives. Um, so it's an interesting, it's an interesting point you you made. This,
5: I mean, that was Jim, Jimmy Carter's famous uh, speech in 1977. He said that there should be no drug where the offence of being caught is more harmful than the effect of taking the drug. And I think we're at a point now, particularly with the uh, new Psychoactive Substances Act, where uh, d- definitely the effects are more harmful of being caught than, than of taking a huge number of these, these drugs.
2: Both of our guests, what, what kind of level are you within drug policy? Where would you, have you got an active interest? Has it gone under your radar?
3: Um, I, suppose, I suppose where I am, um, I... Uh, I believe that um, drug policy should be changed. Like There needs to be a, a, a change in how we look at things. What I get concerned about is um, I get concerned about students I've worked with the young people I've worked with who uh, pretty much are uh, when it's being seen as a criminal act rather than um, a health issue in relation to drug use. That, that kind of concerns me a great deal. I'm also concerned that we're not really just communicating openly. I think there's a, an awful lot of kind of fear and paranoia. Um, actually, similarly, like in relation to sex education in schools as well, there's, there's a similar kind of like panic in relation to that. Um, so I, I'd like us to have more open, honest discussion about a lot of these things in schools. Um, yeah, and I suppose that's always been my position uh, and kind of what I've been thinking about it. But I haven't, I'm not actively involved in that i might write i write poems about it occasionally or like bits and pieces
2: which we're going to get to we might have a special performance later because mark is very unique in the fact that he can put this across in ways that no other guest has done before um but chris as well the same sort of question what what level are you within drug policy i
5: guess i i work in drug policy but i work in medical drug policy so um and i work on on the fringes of it I guess, so I've just made a program called The Doctor Who Gave Up Drugs, ironically, having then presented a program where I took drugs. Uh, um, I see most drugs from the perspective of being a doctor and as a scientist as all drugs fall into the same bucket of compounds with pharmacological effects. And once you start slicing up what we mean by drugs, you you need a huge number of categories or almost no categories at all. So uh, arbitrarily dividing things into things that are legal and illegal, there's, there's, no science, there's very little scientific rationale behind which drugs are legal and which drugs are illegal and how we regulate even drugs within medicine. So I think uh, I, I would like to see the discussion, the same discussion happen with illegal drugs of abuse that, happen, that I think should happen with drugs that are prescribed, which is we should be much more transparent about harm and much more careful about regulation and do everything we can to do harm reduction and avoid black markets. So I think one of the things that I notice in the discussion is in, tri- in, in discussing the absurdity of much of the current drug legislation, we end up with an agenda that is driven by people who are often quite pro-drugs. And I guess I feel anti-drugs, but I feel anti Almost all drugs that aren't absolutely necessary, and there is this tiny number of life-saving compounds and molecules that prolong life and improve quality of life for a very small number of people. But you know, I, the vast, vast majority of prescribed or over-the-counter or illicit drugs, um, or legal legal highs or, 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 or legal substances that you can you can take, like cigarettes and alcohol, most of them are are useless for the things they are intended for.
2: It really struck me, interesting in watching and also hearing the feedback of uh, the doctor who gave up drugs. Is there was there was a tangible fear around it, wasn't there, from patients, the media? There was a how can you say this kind of position with it, and I, can, with someone that's had a, a, a long medical history myself, I can understand how saying to someone, no, you need to get off these opiates, you need to do this, Um, 50% aren't necessarily working in society. There was a lot of people that were taking exception to what you were saying. How did you cope with that? Did you think, was you expecting that kind of, not backlash, but that response?
0: I
5: I guess my perspective of the backlash was actually pretty minimal. So we got a couple of reviews where the Daily Mail, where my wife is an editor, gave us a terribly (laughs) bad review. Uh, But in general... I would say that the groundswell of public support for the idea that taking drugs as ways of being well, whether they are, whether that is uh, recreational illegal drugs, or whether that is drugs that your doctor prescribes for you, or whether that is vitamin pills that you buy in a, in a in a in a in a in a organic food shop, none of them work very well. And so I, I think there is a there is a genuine kind of feeling of yeah no that is that is the correct thing to say
2: a lot of the message as well is about the holistic health of exercise of of general well-being and happiness
5: yeah so the 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 key thing was we if you just say so so there was um there was some research done that showed that paracetamol didn't work for osteoarthritis just doesn't work at all you might as well take a sugar pill and that research was suppressed because paracetamol is something that lean on people lean on so heavily it's the most prescribed one of the most prescribed drugs in in the country for treating knee pain that what else are people going to do so we could there it was felt that we couldn't change the guidelines now subsequently the research was published the guidelines have been changed but there is an anxiety of leaving people with nothing and doctors are very bad at saying well there's a pile of up there's a raft of other things you can do we just it's very hard it's complicated to generate evidence for them
2: Without segueing too much into another area of discussion, but is that because there just isn't the time to provide patients with
5: with so, those so I'll segue it back toward, uh, toward the evidence about harms in recreational drugs uh, uh, and, and i don't know if is that the form of language you use recreational drugs or drugs of abuse Can illegal do, drugs I, mean, I, I think uh, you know that's that uh, in, in, in hospital we tend to talk about drugs of abuse um, so there is, for example, an argument that many powerfully psychoactive substances are not particularly harmful. So there's, there's a, a, the science on something like um, skunk or LSD is that actually the long-term harms seem to be quite limited. It doesn't seem to be very addictive. Now, I would say that generating good evidence about long-term psychological harms from a drug like LSD is next to impossible. If we think of how hard it's been to untangle whether or not statins cause muscle aches, it's been... I, and this is quite a young audience, but is anyone here on a statin? Is anyone here aware of the statin? So statins are cholesterol-lowering drugs that prevent you having strokes and heart attacks, but they cause muscle aches in a lot of people, and they're the, they're the biggest-selling drugs in the world. And to try and establish whether or not these drugs save life and whether or not they do harm has been next to impossible with billions and billions and billions of pounds worth of university and government and drug company research. So to say that we feel confident about harms of ecstasy, of cocaine... It's is, is really difficult, and I, I would be, I would be very much on the side of saying I think all these things can be immensely harmful, and
2: this is something that we struggle with, isn't it, in the discussion of giving people enough information that they can make considered choices, but at the same time contextualising that there are harms out there.
4: Yeah, I mean, coming back to terminology. Uh, we we would never use the the term drug of abuse because that has been the sort of the language from the propaganda about drug use. Because according to sort of traditional prohibitionist rhetoric, all drugs that someone, someone would use recreationally are therefore abused. But actually, only ten percent of people who use drugs have a problem with those drugs, which is around the same percentage as you do for something like gambling, or or, or, or just about any other kind of addiction. So. When, when you think about the language and, and the information that, that people have, well, people have, do have to make informed choices. And so I think the extent that science studies it that we have, for example, Professor Nutt's Comparative Harms Index, I think is really, really useful, and the information in there is useful for people to make informed choices because people are going to take drugs. So then the information needs to be out there. But just a quick point about the education for, for kids and the level of detail that you can go in. Because we're always stuck by the fact that we don't know what we're talking about. Because with sex education, well, we, know, you know, we know all the facts and figures about that. That's not ambiguous. But for drugs, the drugs aren't regulated so we don't know what's in them, so we don't know what we're educating about. So, so that's a step further from your point. You, you're making the point that even if we do know what's in them, it still would take a few decades of research to really work out what's going on because they're not sufficiently studied. But in the forms that they are available in the illicit, in the illicit market, well, they're, they're, not, they're not regulated, so how do you advise anyone? It, it, it does make it tricky. I know that's it's, potentially it's dangerous a conversation.
5: To take under. miscellaneous white powder <laughs> yeah. sold to you by criminals. Yeah, I guess that's where you land, isn't it? Yeah.
2: From our side, the stats say that drug use is getting less amongst youngsters. But Mark, would you say from your practical experience, in my childhood, there was prevalence in schools, not necessarily of mainstream drugs. There was a lot of... uh, Well, I
3: I mean, the problem is I'm very nervous about getting into anything that's too anecdotal, really. Like, I've seen young people who have dealt drugs. I mean, I've... I mean, I'm pretty sure that every year I went to university, I lived with a drug dealer and I lived in three different houses and there was different groups. And I just think it's just something that I've always been aware of being around in one way or another. Um, I, I work in schools all around the country now and I, I I just, the one thing that I know is it's just everything is drastically different. The way things are spoken about in one school can be very different to the way things are spoken about in another school. The experiences one group of kids have can be massively different to the experience another group of kids have uh, and so I think the only thing that I categorically do think is is, is right is that i've got I, i've also got um, to do with sex education I, I, do, I also' think sex education is not. Up to speed, I don't think we've adapted to online pornography and how we talk with young people about that at all. I think that's a massive issue, but I think as well, I think we're on the back foot always, and probably we always will be on the back foot with uh, and how we communicate about drugs with young people under the current setup, with the, the view, the view, this view of crime and punishment in in relation to things. Um, which the thing that makes me really sad is just the number of times that I've seen young people who have Become involved in uh, in dealing at quite a young age. It's this
2: perverse system, isn't it? Is that we base our drug laws on a deterrent, but then people are vulnerable age if they oh, do yeah, get and, into wait, the drug and, trade. And,
3: and um, and sorry, and and there's a huge social. Bonus, right? To a lot, a lot of young people, in, in, like in in dealing as well. Like it's 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 great for social status. It it can bring you some actual money, like more than you could probably get working in any any other context. Um, it's yeah, it's it, it's a you've, it's a big issue. You've got
2: a really unique position now, as as you said, you work a lot with the hip hop artists, but also you're going into schools. So two pretty different realms that are going on there. I would imagine, cause having worked in the music industry as well, that drugs are pretty prevalent in the
3: music industry. Yeah, I mean, I would say that a lot of hip hop MCs that I know that I work with are super interested in me doing this. Really? Yeah, they're really interested in. they they're they're really interested in this. And many many artists, many artists I know are. I think a lot of artists have either at one point, particularly within uh, the hip hop community that I've worked with, have been very vocally. Uh, pro decriminalising like, decriminalizing, like m- pretty much every kind of drug at some p- or like many drugs at some point but then also there are regularly recurring themes in a lot of the same artist's work where they have turned around and they start thinking about the effect of the drugs that they've been taking and what it's done to them. It's kind of like almost like a bit of a kind of running gag within hip-hop that everyone's got a like I've smoked too much <laughs> <laughs> like, track, you know like I'm going to try and th- sort my life out. There. So there's there's both sides to it there as well.
2: And again, that's where both of you have got a unique position as well, because the distribution, distribution of information that you're both doing are very different demographics, as we touched on. You do both adult television and children de- television. Um, is there any consolidation to the, to the way that you do deliver messages within those demographics of children and adults, or are we having two separate conversations? <laughs>
5: That's a, that's a great question. I, uh, I, You can have a much more interesting conversation with kids. So when you present on adult television, there is a need for things to be new and exciting and the latest. Whereas kids don't... Kid, my experience with kids is that once they get to 10, they're phenomenally smart. So there are lots of 10-year-olds who are just as smart as me, but they don't know very much, which is what gives me an advantage in managing them? I don't know if you find that as well, but, you know, they're they're on one level, they're idiots, and on another level, they're phenomenally smart, and if you you don't keep your eye out, they'll quickly get the better of you. So, um, but because they don't know anything, you can tell them how the kidney works, and they'll marvel at it. Now, grown-ups don't know how the kidney works either, but they have a sense that we've known about kidneys for a long time. So, kids, you you have the opportunity to kind of start again. But I, I... I think, it, you know, sitting here trying to imagine having a conversation on Children's BBC about drugs, the thing is the hazard is so high, so there's no upside, really. or well, the upside is so intangible and vague, whereas the downside is so concrete in terms of complaints and harm and the, the, the risk that every time we open our m- mouths about drugs, and I'm acutely conscious this is being filmed, I'm being recorded, and and imagining my kind of bosses at CBBC, with whom I'm great friends listening to this and you know I'm doing it, kind of going, how do I find a form of words that doesn't glamorise this, that's honest? If I say drugs law is bad, does that encourage people to break the law? So I don't know. Is this I find these things very ticklish. And, and this is exactly the
2: trouble we have, isn't it, Neil, is that how do you deliver the messages that we need to, without it being politicised, polarising, and it is difficult because you have to insert so many disclaimers along the way, don't you? Especially with what you've been doing lately with the book promotion.
4: Yeah, I mean, we could spend our time quoting Martin Luther King that we have a moral duty to dis- disobey an unjust law, I suppose, but that wouldn't necessarily be appropriate, would it? So I won't say that. Um,
2: grab it from the record.
4: <laughs> yeah, it, it is difficult. I mean, it's, it's, we're we're an organisation of law enforcement, so. You know, you know, we 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 have people on our team, chief constables, um, XMI five law law keepers, and we are talking. We are saying that the 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 law is 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 an ass, really, and um, th- these laws do ha- do more harm than good. So 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 we campaign on that on that basis, really.
2: And it 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 must be difficult for someone like you, Chris, that is in that position that has got certain viewpoints of how information should be delivered, but. As you said, you have to be so careful in the, the way that you do put that across. It, is it binding? Is it as bad as what I'd imagine it is?
5: I'm trying to work out what I say to that. <laughs> um, <laughs> trapman. Is, is it bad? I, I think you're constantly, you're juggling, I, I have this, this, this sort of mental juggle of going, well, the law is an ass, but the drugs are harmful. And it's that, I think the thing that, it, and I, Mark, I'll be really interested in your view on this, that kids have a super sense for hypocrisy. And I think they get this because it's, it's, if they can figure out um, with, with parents if there is a, a little bit of hypocrisy going on, it gives them such a good angle on, on winning an argument. And I'm, I don't know if that happens at school, but if yeah, the kids yeah. work out that you are a hypocrite in some way, it creates such yeah, a weakness. Yeah, yeah.
3: We had a, an issue where um, the assistant head uh, was known by the students to be a smoker, and he would <laughs> regularly be out around the back of the school right. Like, chain-smoking away. And then he had to go in and run one of the PSHE sessions about why... What, what's PSHE? Uh, so personal social health education. Um, so he had to run one of those sessions. Um, in Acheo group. we just got the, the stuff through about, about uh, cigarettes and smoking and why it's bad. And then that whole session... Um, and he's an assistant head with a huge amount of authority, but it was very difficult for him to keep that running... And you know, and I spoke to him afterwards, and he said he pretty much had to go put a block on it and go look right. And we, they, they, it turned into like a counselling session for him from the students when they're going, well, why did you do it, sir? Like, why do you feel you need to do this? And then they kind of talked through that, and they felt that they got that, uh, you know, they got everything they wanted to work out by by grilling him. Uh, and so he got a resolution. But um, you know, but that's the thing; they'll. They're, they're they're, they're smart. They'll, they'll find a way to, to, to get to discuss it um, and get to work it out. But yeah, absolutely. I so, totally so, agree. So, Do
5: you think that's a, that's a kind of microcosm of the Western world, where we know in his autobiography President Obama talks about trying cocaine? I, cannot, I was at Oxford a few years behind David Cameron. I had friends in the Bullingdon, and um, they were loathsome, and uh, they were universally... Uh, heavy users, you know, of of drugs and and anything else you can imagine, and the idea that that you can go through the and untouched by drugs, uh, is is. You know, I've got to be careful. I'm, I'm being saying, libelous yeah. here. I've got. I, 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 you know, it, you will be surrounded by. You know, moving in that in those circles at that university, there, there was a lot of drug use, unquestionably. I'm sure not everyone in the building. I'm really in trouble now, aren't I? Never mind with CBBC. Now I'm in trouble with that. With we get there, Nicky. So, so, so I think that there is this hypocrisy where we know, we just know. And I um I think I can say this: that I know, You can imagine my friends are a kind of weird demographic of my sort of Oxford lawyers and doctors and barristers and, and rather staid people and people who advise the government and then there are a lot of media types and the and, and then also I work in a scientific lab with, with people who are a mixture of doctors and, and molecular biolo- biologists and virologists and drug use is not universal but within each group there is uh, a huge percentage of people who routinely think nothing of using class A drugs. And so we have a sort of weird internal hypocrisy, whether it's within families, within social groups, or whether it's citizens looking to government, where we know, all of us know, that what we're being told isn't true. But my issue is that that masks the true harms, where, because it gives the population an opportunity to say, well, these things are not actually that dangerous because what you've said in one way is a lie, so we know the rest of it is a lie. And as someone who's taken huge quantities of psychedelics in in Africa and in South America, um, the harm that I think they did me would be immensely hard to measure scientifically. I certainly wouldn't show up on a scan. I doubt there's a test. But I think anyone here who's taken large quantities of psychedelics might also agree that it alters you in some slightly intangible way and you become a slightly different person. That may be good or it may be bad. But it would be very hard to capture that without detailed research. And so we, we, we gloss over all this stuff that we should discuss in a nuanced way.
2: And on that note, don't forget the bar's open if anybody wants to get a drink in. Um, and that is, that's, really, that's really true, and I think that really taps into what we do in LEAP, is that once information is fragmented and isn't believed, then your message is none and void because people don't believe it anymore. Would you say it's true, Neil, that a lot of times, drug ed- from our position, drug education, is pretty much nonsense just because we know the facts and evidence are out there now because we've got the internet, we've got Professor Nut telling us what harm scales are. So if we're projecting messages of harm, especially cannabis is the one that we use in the media all the time, and as we know, it's very, very low down the harm scale, you only need to just lie once for it just to be completely brushed over.
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the problem we have is... Uh Certainly, for reform, the evidence is on all our on our side. You know, there's been people in the reform sector gathering evidence about what works and what doesn't, and the harms of the current drug laws. So we won the argument. You know, sit, sit us down and with de- have a debate with people in the room. We're always going to win, but the trouble is, winning the argument isn't enough because it doesn't necessarily convince people. So it it's it's about saliency. It's about Trying to convince people that this issue matters. And rather than just sit back and smugly think, well, it goes on, but it doesn't, doesn't matter, or I know people who do it, or I, I did it once and it didn't do me any harm, but I'm still going to vote the, the, the drug laws in. You know, people have got to be, become involved in it, I think, and become passionate about it. So I think I lost my thread there because I completely forgot no, no, the question you
2: asked. And I'm going to kind of segue because, um, as, I, as I hinted, is that Mark may do a performance for us. So the way that I'm going to set this up. Is talking about the first time that we were all personally aware of drugs, uh, from a you know just from a very aware of yeah. So when you as a child or even as an adult, I fully hold my hands up that I was very naive to drugs. It was only in my mid twenties that I decided actually I might want to do a bit of research on this. Before that, I was a child of the eighties of just saying no. It worked for me. Grange Hill had a great impact. I hate your Grange Hill, though. It was kind of depressing. But Neil, when what was the moment that you were aware of drugs, in, you know, this big frame, drugs?
4: Well, um, I actually have the most horrific memory of Nancy Reagan on TV talking, of, yeah, really, it's, it's awful, um, and talks saying that, the, you know, one smoke of crack cocaine and you will be addicted for life. That's it, one smoke and your life's over. And I think it was reiterated by Ronald Reagan and, um, and those kind of messages are absolutely terrifying. Don't know how old I was. I think probably about eleven, something like that, ten or eleven, it would be. Um, and it was quite a campaign. You know, it was picked up by all, all of the press, and obviously all, the, all of the tabloids were looking for the evil black people who were dealing crack cocaine in all of the city suburbs. And there were some regular stories about you know young black crack dealers. And it was a it was the most horrendous scaremongering thing. And I remember it very, very distinctly, very distinctly. I mean, I, I came across. Cannabis as a teenager, um, I think most people in my town did, um, used it a bit, most teenagers did. But when I went into the police, my view on drugs was still, certainly crack cocaine and heroin, was very much formed by that propagandist take, um, and and it shaped my my early years. So, you know, I had quite a distance to go, really, for forming a different opinion.
2: So you were a complete product your environment, same as what I was and, and Chris, when would you say that your first
5: awareness of this noun, drugs, that are out there? Uh, uh, so I, I guess I became aware of drugs around me only once I got into media, I suppose. I had a very square life at medical school. Like most doctors, I drank more than almost all of my patients. So we smoked and drank. We didn't take any drugs. And then once I got into media, I suddenly realised that I... I Made friends with uh, who were poets and artists and television producers, and it, it was a group of people that took a lot of drugs. So yeah, I guess for me it was sort of mid twenties I became aware of it. Yeah.
2: So again, same with me, quite sheltered then, and and having worked in the media as well recently, there's no getting away from it. They are there, aren't they? There, there's there's a whole sector, and this is something that we're dealing with. leap, is there? There's two tiers. Oh, thank you very much. Um, yeah, there's two tiers of uh, of criminal justice system that if you're of a certain demographic then you're not going to get touched by the criminal justice system and what you touched on is the war on drugs was there to be divisive towards certain social demographics
5: can, can I I don't want to derail you, if you, if you but I wanted to ask Neil or both of you really a question that do you think um, that when we talk about the, the problems with prohibition that we are Sufficiently honest about the harms and unintended consequences and the unknowns of not prohibition, whatever that would look like. Because I, I wonder, I think there would, we would be swapping. In my view, we'd be swapping one set of harms for another. I think it would be lesser harms, and it would harm fewer people. But we would definitely harm some different people. Do you think we're straightforward about that and open about that?
4: I, I think we are. I'm quite confident in that. In in, in the in the regard that that we study it but the wider public don't have sufficient information to make that judgment yet because on the one hand you've got the propaganda that comes out for example national crime agency will talk about some enormous seizure of of cocaine and they'll show you the big pictures like bales of a hay size and uh, it's propaganda because it means nothing because we don't they're not saying what percentage of the annual import of cocaine it is. You know, they say it's so many million lines of cocaine that's not reached the streets, but that's not true. It's just written off by the business. So the information that people have is skewed, and the inform- also the information that people need to consider is that organised crime is, forever- is constantly getting more powerful, and the level of corruption that that causes in society is growing. The organised crime groups are getting more monopolised, and they are corrupting children, children in much larger numbers with every year that passes. So if you were to weigh up the, the costs to individuals and society in terms of an unregulated or a regulated system of drugs, what has to be factored into that decision-making process and those considerations are the costs to society of organised crime being so powerful. So it's a very broad conversation. We need to be talking about every aspect of it. But if you talk about just the harms of drugs, well, all drugs can be harmful, so we need to get them under control. Because at the moment, they're not. And you could argue, and I think you could legitimately argue, that for many drugs, adult consumption could go up if drugs were regulated. But I am certain, because in our society at the moment, teenagers can access cannabis easier than they can alcohol. I think that regulating these drugs would protect the children. And it's the children we should be talking about, I think.
2: And that kind of segues into, Mark, can we do the yeah. my first yeah. drugs trip?
3: Oh, right, yeah. yeah. Uh, oh, um, okay, yeah, so I write poems uh, and I perform uh, around the place. Let now. me know if
2: you do, because I'm going to sit down there and record.
3: Okay, cool. Do you want, I normally stand up. Yeah,
2: keep, you go for it, honestly, do what you like. I,
3: guys, I'll just read it to you as if I'm reading a poem at a gig, if that's all right. Um, um, so, yeah, I, I read, I write poems a lot. Um, I wrote... I was doing a project a while ago where I was asked to write a piece uh, in relation to drugs and drug, drugs guidance in, in one way or another and one of the things I found with a lot of teenagers that I spoke to was they said that they felt that the adults had some kind of ulterior motive and they weren't being honest and it was all propaganda and they said they would just like someone to be honest with us so I thought well I'll, the honest thing is I'll write, <laughs> I'll write about the, uh, my first like, oh, like, like an early experience where I, I tried drugs uh, and I'll just read them a poem about that. Um, So it goes like this. Um, When I was 17 years old, I was called a jitter in my hometown. Now, jitters were guys who were renowned for our frowns and our interest in the post-grunge sound. With dyed hair, purple DMs bound tight below shredded jeans and rock T-shirts, we thought we looked all right. And we found that looking alternative could get the girls a little bit flustered. It was something that was later proved very popular for busted. So we... Cultivated, looked similar to the modern-day emo, just more well-adjusted and with brighter clothes. Reading festival bands the colour of mustard and our black studded gloves. We looked dangerous and morose, being followed by security as we moped about in Waitrose. (laughs) And while we sat on the swings... And we smoked through our roll-ups, we swigged upon cider, we moaned about grown-ups, and we talked about girls and the bands that we liked and the plethora of heavier drugs we should try. Because we all listened to music and we all read Kerrang! To us artists and drugs, they sort of went hand in hand. Every artist we rated celebrated their blazing on festival stages or else they raged against them in interview statements, complained that it aged them and even that sounded great. We just wanted a way in but it was frustrating like some really bad joke. Because the dealers around our way were nastier blokes. Skinheads in puffer jackets You get smashed to a pulp if you, as a jitter, tried blagging some dope. So each night we talked highs just how much we lusted for some kind of drug until Chen mentioned nutmeg. Right? Nutmeg is... A drug printed off from the net, details of its psychedelic effects, plus a comment that one trip was better than sex. And I have to confess, we were really impressed as guys who hadn't tried either of those yet. And so we swooped on our spice racks, we sidestepped our mothers, we scooped up supplies and we met with each other, pooled our resources, we grated the lot, filled empty bottles of Robinson squash with the pieces, used water to top it all up and we did up the lids and we swiftly took off and we went to the witches and we sat on the stumps and we opened the bottles and did they hum but we weren't giving up on what we'd begun we held noses to thumbs proceeded to chug for about 30 seconds and then we began to throw up a lot and as we threw up We spluttered and roared, chucking up chunks of nutmeg on us all. Eventually, each of us gripped to the floor, heaving until we couldn't heave anymore. And as we all lay there, we spluttered and chatted of how we might die. Our faces all plastered in each other's vomit, the nutmeg and acid. It felt like an age. Just two hours had passed, and and then it wore off. And we washed in the river and we each headed home to safety and dinner. And I'm a lot older now. I don't want to spoil it with too many details. I've hugged a few toilets. I'm aware of the hard stuff. I choose to avoid it. I still drink and I smoke and I sort of enjoy it. And my mates have grown too. Some have moved on to bigger things. They have serious jobs, yet they seem to take everything. Yet some won't touch booze and one won't touch medicine. And there's some who are a mess from the way drugs are mess with them. I met with one friend the other day. He told me to give anything to go back to the point where only nutmeg tested him. Cool. Thanks very much for
5: support. I
3: think. Do you know what? Thank you. Um, see, like when I wrote it, the thing that I kept thinking is um, we we dabbled in, in like in weed and like some like mild stuff when we were younger. And we were, and the one thing I would say is we were, like, adamant that, like, decriminalization of weed, like, we would have, like, you know, like, those little, like, the the stickers and the flags and, like, all this kind of stuff. And, like, loads of my mates were, like, really into it. And we were, like, really passionate about it. And the one thing I, the one thing that has kept coming back to me is, like, I, as I've got older, and I don't know what anyone else thinks about it, but I, I have just thought that, like, when I was dabbling in that, or other people were dabbling in that, I didn't have the same motivations driving me to dabble in that, that those people had. And I thought we were having a little bit of fun and it was fine and it was all cool. And then we got older. And as we got older, some people were like, no, totally. And they, were like, and they, they left it quicker and they weren't, they weren't interested. Some people carried on. Some of my friends still you know, use a, a variety of drugs and they would say they're incredibly happy and in control of what they're doing and they're, they're really pleased with that. But at the same time, there are some people I knew at school who really had something else that was going on that meant they, they were latching onto that and were doing it, and it, it ruined their lives. Like, it really... I mean, I've had friends that have been sectioned, like, friends that, that ended up in prison, like, really bad stuff. And so the one thing that it kept making me think is that you don't realise why someone else is choosing to take a substance or to do anything that's going on with that. And that's, that's, what, that's my concern with, with our education.
2: When we saw that that performance, both Neil and I was like, that's amazing. And that's why we were so adamant at getting you on here. Because from our side, and this is something that you both have probably got respective positions on, is that what you said, your products and environments, if you do have prescription drug abuse, if you have recreational drug abuse, then it probably stems from some trauma or emotional need within your life and you could certainly have written about this in your book and I imagine this is the root of what is in the doctor that gave up drugs uh who gave up drugs but also if there is prescription drug abuse then it is the same principles of that it's product environment
5: would you agree uh, so uh so I was at uh, um, an all party parliamentary committee uh this week talking about over- overuse of, of opioids and there's some amazing Statistics or making decisions about policy in in opioid prescription. So uh, somewhere between thirty and fifty percent of this of the adults in this country suffer with chronic pain. So are in pain at any given time, and most of that pain doesn't come from injury signals from their body. That it comes from. Higher up, so it comes from previous trauma, histories of abuse, and I, I think I think what uh, the, the point you're making is really, really profound in a way that I think is so, it's so obvious to you that you don't understand how profound it is for a doctor to understand that most pain is not to do with tissue injury; most pain is to do with with histories of of trauma. And so, I think when when you make that point about how some of your friends, how, how there are different things that drive people to drugs, that is that is, you know very profound, that the, the, the things that keep people in cycles of abuse are very different. And I think it's not much to do with biology, probably, the things that drive us to, to cycles of abuse. It's not, it's not, we won't be able to find genes or receptors. It would be, it would be harder to track than that.
2: And our friend Johan Hari makes a
5: brilliant case for that in Chasing the
2: Scream, doesn't he, Neil? And, and again, your book does as well with the fact that you've been up close and personal with people that have had drug dependency because of emotional trauma.
4: Yeah, I mean uh, the, the, the principal thing that drove me really in uh, in, in trying to find out way, ways different ways of doing things is the, is the fact that I was empathizing with the people that I was manipulating. So vulnerable people self-medicating with her, Well, first of all, realizing that they were self-medicating was a, was a bit the first step along the way really, but such a variety of reasons and the, the people that were most damaged were the ones that were taking the most amount of heroin. I mean, if you look at statistics from uh, Switzerland where they prescribe heroin, they only prescribe heroin to the top 10 per, the, say top 10%, the 10% who had the biggest problem with it. it would, but that 10% was taking more than 50% of the heroin that came into the country. So obviously they were self-medicating a lot. But, you know, where, where I met so many broken people for so many reasons, but an extremely common theme... Which I know I've, I've probably talked on, on here a lot about is an enormous percentage of people who are self-medicating, taking heroin, are doing so because of child sexual abuse, and in the age of Jimmy Savile, it's not something we should really be surprised about. You know, where, where do people think that they go? You know, pe- people are finding ways to numb themselves, and um, and, and th- those people should never be criminalised. It's, it's it's such a simple, simple observation and fact to me. These these people, you, you, if you criminalize them, it's just cruelty. It's, com- it's it's compounding trauma on top of trauma. You know, if it's someone who's struggling to deal with life, life, and then you stick them in a prison cell and then through the system is nightmarish, really.
6: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze.
1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash loss. That's plushcare.com slash That's
2: And also, again, I have kind of touched on it earlier, but the doctor who gave up drugs is that it was, from a patient's perspective, there was a lot of people that were afraid to give up their drugs. And it's the same with recreational or, or prescribed medicine, that they become a hook. They become some, a safety net for your life. So when you were getting that... That reticence from patients how how did you deal with that
5: I think what, what doctors have a tendency to do is we we have this very very primitive medical medical model of disease and illness, so the Nancy Reagan quote is so lovely because it totally misunderstands the it perhaps goes somewhere toward understanding the biology of crack cocaine, but it goes nowhere toward understanding the anthropology or the sociology of crack cocaine so or the psychology of it so of course. You know, I, almost everyone here could smoke crack cocaine once and wouldn't develop any kind of problem. Probably wouldn't even be very enjoyable for them. Um, so, the the thing that doctors are bad at doing is is stepping outside the box and going, well, here try something else. And I think we have we've boxed ourselves in because we've committed to an evidence base and we've said, well, we must treat people according to evidence, which I, I certainly believe. But there are huge realms of human existence where it is impossible to generate an evidence base. So one of those might be the use of exercise as therapy. So there's a lot of circumstantial evidence that exercise is very good for us. But if we think about how variable we are as individuals and how much some of us hate some exercises and love other exercises, doing a placebo-controlled, randomized trial to test whether or not a particular exercise was good would be next to impossible. So generating that evidence is hard and so we end up with a sort of an odd mixture of supposition and, and trial and error and without much, prescribing without confidence and I think it's very hard to develop guidelines and medicine is also becoming increasingly algorithmic. So we lean on evidence, we lean on guidelines and we're not sure what to do in the absence of evidence. The other thing is that the evidence for drugs is extremely robust and has massive heft behind it because there is huge amounts of money in it. and so. It, drugs are the one intervention where it is possible to develop immensely robust statistical models proving beyond all question of a doubt that a drug is good for you by a particular metric. But that metric may not be of any interest to you. But we can say statins are good for you because they unquestionably lower your cholesterol. Whether or not they improve your life is a much more complex question. It may be true, it may not be true, but the studies tend not to answer that.
2: It must be difficult as well in in your realm as a teacher. If evidence and that's a buzz term of ours, it needs to be based on evidence. If it doesn't match up to the message that you're trying to project, how do you deal with that? How do you get that information across on evidence-based platforms, no matter what it be, whether it be sex education, drug education, or any other kind of harm? If it doesn't live up to that, but but don't do it.
3: I I don't know. I mean, I I don't teach anymore, so I've been kind of freelance, you know, going to schools. I do go in, in that respect. But I mean, the only thing I'd say is, from what I see and people I work with and, and projects I've worked on, I think on the whole, people are like muddling along, like, you know, trying to fit, fit within the gaps, you know, what, what they can and, and, and do what they can with the information. It's, it's, it's I, I'd say by and large, it's quite impersonal, the kind of the information that's, that's presented and, and what's being discussed.
2: Can you take in books like Professor Nutt's uh, Drugs About Hot Air, the fact that that is a purely academic educational book that's stripped down so people can understand it, is there any way that you can get that on the syllabus or is that just too far out there that it's telling too much of a truth about drugs?
3: Well, there would be no... What would be the reason... The issue you've got is what would be the reason to study it. As I said before, if you were studying it for the writing, you could study it in English, but if you're not... There's no teaching and learning requirement... It, like there's no, you wouldn't. I mean, you could read sections of it. I mean, you could. You absolutely could. If you were to be discussing uh, in PSHE, you could take sections, photocopies of, of parts of the book. And I, you know, and I'm sure there are schools and there are teachers who would, who would do that. Um, but I mean, yeah, we have. We, I mean, we've lost of mice and men. Do you know what I mean? Like as a book, like we've to, yeah. got, we've got pretty strict limits on what we can and cannot cover as literature anyway already. I
2: think I I ended up doing Kez as well. That was one of them. And oh, Kez, I, I, all right. Yeah, I enjoy Kez and Ken Loach, obviously a complete legend. Um, other than that, I can't remember. It is it is difficult to fit in those educational purposes, because well, at what age do we dis- start discussing this with our children? Again, there's no probably right answer for that, is there? As
4: and when it comes up, again, with such education. Well, I think we've established that it's younger and younger children that are becoming aware of it for one reason or another. So perhaps the right answer is before they hear it from their peers. But um, would, that, would that be it. a forever descending age? I, I don't know, but... I, I think I th- you'll
3: always be playing catch-up. I think you will, always will be playing catch-up It's to an extent. I just think... The, yeah, I think, I think the education will always have to be one step behind the thing you're educating people about. You have to respond as things are changing within that, that topic and that issue. So it is always going to be on the back foot.
2: Is it conceivable, as I as said, we're playing catch-up, is it conceivable that the, the emerging generations are going to be more on the ball than what ours was, based on the, the 80s education of just saying no, but whereas now we do have evidence-based platforms, we've got great shows, great teachings. Can we, can we fill that in? Do you think there is going to be a point where generational change is going to come I mean, through. young
3: people are, are, are fantastic at using the internet and finding their own information out. I think, uh, yeah, I, I think in, in many ways, young people are, they excel at, at learning information and finding the answers to things and, and, and working those things out themselves. We've got a real issue with social interaction and the fact that like we, you know, we don't we do don't speaking and listening in schools anymore, that's, that's been removed. And we have a young young population who actually, in their spare time, socialise face to face with each other less than than the, the young generation ever has. I mean, that's 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 a huge issue. But actually, in all honesty, getting access to information is 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 fantastic. Same with levels of literacy. Actually, really, really good. Because yeah, because online literacy is 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 a real thing. You know, young people read things all the time.
2: Is is there a gap for things like podcasts fitting in there? I mean, we've got Say Why to Drugs on the Scroobius Pip Distraction Network. Susie Gage that's put out there, purely educational, um, almost documentary-like productions on each drug in turn. Can we potentially use that? I mean, it's going to be something predominantly that students are going to throw it out for themselves as opposed to being able to...
3: I mean, maybe, but i mean i would say like how long is a podcast if you can get a podcast down to about 45 seconds yeah i think i think they will i think we'll engage with it i mean that's your job you can you can you can tap and receive anything you you can find out anything you want you can see anything you want in like a second so to hold a young person's attention for the duration of uh of a half hour podcast uh yeah that would be i think that would be quite impressive
2: and that's key to what you do doing, it, Chris, is that with regards to presenting children's TV, the way you present it is, I'd imagine, absolutely key to get that audience hooked and intrigued.
5: I guess so. I mean, I guess it's not preachy, and it, we try and break it down into, you know, microsecond chunks with a pumping soundtrack, and most of it's funny, and we sneak in medical facts. Yeah, I mean, it's... it's. But, I, I mean, I would say, you know, I teach medical students now who are, who are uh, 18... 19 years younger than me, and uh, they are better at handling the distractions of the modern world than I am. So I I, I struggle with my phone and with my social media accounts, and I, I guess because I have a, a, a some public profile, I get a constant dopaminergic, you know, surge every time I get a little ping, and I, I have to really manage it, you know, it's 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 a thing for me. So I, I think young people, my experience is they're, they're getting better at managing the distractions, and they're... they're pretty sophisticated at dissecting the evidence but I, I suspect we're seeing two populations and i'm you know when you present operation out you go and mix with with one set and the medical students may be another some people are probably getting worse and some people are getting better
2: we're not really touched on that actually social media and what part they can play in any kind of information distribution whether it's good or bad i imagine there's a danger of it being quite dodgy as well we we certainly get to see it, and we nail some dodgy old things out
3: there. <laughs> well, I mean, social media is is the new news source. That is that is your friends are going to be your how you receive news about the world and how you make a picture of what, of what you think the world is all about. More, more and more. Um, yeah, and the, and that is again that's another area that we will always be paying ca- catch up on.
2: And this kind of leads me into what I wanted to. Finish this part with before we go over to questions. Make sure you have questions queued up because there was one time I decided to go to the audience and you had nothing. You let me down, so don't let me down tonight. Um, Drugs Live, you both got high together on live TV. Uh, I joined you in the green room afterwards for some conversation, which you might not even remember, Chris. I was there next year. You
5: <laughs> You weren't. You weren't high. No, I was the only. Yeah, I was you, the only high person. Yeah, you were the only high person. And yeah. high is not the word. I was the only uh, paranoid, anxious, uh, uh, hallucinating person in the room. So
2: just again, explain what happened. If it, can anybody remember Channel Four Drug Live, it was March last year. Um, so there was participants of Jon Snow, who famously lost it on skunk in quotation marks Um, because that's what they did they use shorthand they use skunk being a high thc content hash being a a more of a cbd based product so it's for the puritans out there that we wasn't necessarily enamored with the terminology but it it worked for shorthand on live
5: on air chris you took what we do we know what it was you took uh, the equivalent of a third of a joint of hash is how it's explained to me. Right. I mean, you know, it was a huge bag of, of smoke. It was a bin, a bin liner full of, full of smoke. And, and what was it like? Because I can't imagine
2: doing it under those settings. Like It's, it's the same principle doing it now, getting high off, off the site right here, right now.
5: Make well, Ch- Channel 4's uh, policy was that they wanted uh, someone who had taken... And it was really a weird set of criteria. So you had to have taken drugs before. You couldn't be drugs naive, but you um, couldn't uh, couldn't be a regular user. And uh, you had to be medically qualified and experienced at being on television, which brought the number of available people in Britain down to me, I think, um, since I had previously taken drugs on television. Uh, it was horrible. I mean, I think of of the of the drugs that I have tried uh, the, the one uh, aside from alcohol the strongest drug is is uh, is cannabis for me and that's why i think i uh, you know what you were saying about involving personal experience is really bad i, I think a lot of for a lot of people it's not it's not particularly bad for me it was a very very unpleasant experience and this the skunk which i'd taken earlier in the week in a research lab on the tottenham court road a couple of hundred meters up there Um, I I had a a very, very unpleasant experience of of very, very strong visual hallucinations for 12 hours and and paranoia and anxiety. My wife had to come and collect me uh, from Leon on Tottenham Court Road (laughs) where I had the munchies. So, no, for me, very unenjoyable uh, other than than sort of meeting Neil, who was a very very kind of uh, uh, good friend to meet. Uh, although in my paranoid state, I was worried about meeting a, an ex uh, an ex cop at this at this party. Yeah,
2: and it was because I I didn't really speak much to you that night because I was to the side of you, and, and Neil was very much being the spotter of the evening. Um, but, but you had a great reaction, didn't you? You loved it.
4: Yeah, I, I must say though, you, you came across very well, though, Chris. Very composed and uh, thoughtful. Yeah, you, but. Yeah, I think we were probably keeping you talked down. I'm not sure, but yeah, I mean, I, I had the THC, and I thought it's fantastic stuff. I had a, I had absolutely marvelous time. It, it, you know, there's no there's no no other words for it really. You've got to be honest about these things, haven't you? It was just fabulous, and I found this the setting of you know, the people in white coats, you know, the doctors in white coats, and all the sciencey stuff going on. It's absolutely hilarious. It was just so funny. So yeah. I can't I shouldn't say i recommend it that's the wrong thing to say isn't it Um, I recommend being involved in a study for Channel 4 that's the best way of putting it if you get
2: to do drugs legally on live TV Neil's
4: saying give give it a consideration but yeah absolutely Um, but but, you know people are different aren't they
2: and that's the key is that it's something that keeps cropping up in our field all the time it's set and setting is that you can have different responses depending on your environment once more and this is what I think the programme did a good job of explaining is that there is going to be some people that are going to have adverse effects, Jon Snow being the the complete example of that, and then you being the one that wanted to sit down laughing at white coats whilst listening to hip-hop. So it's completely yeah, but they didn't,
4: they didn't play me any hip-hop. I asked, I asked for them for some hip-hop and they didn't play me any. Yeah, a yeah, bit it's, disappointing. There's probably no
2: peer-reviewed hip-hop, which is, might be what um, Mark <laughs> <laughs> <could help us>. <laughs> really... <laughs> But this is this you did say that, didn't you mark, that the hip hop world is out there, um, which is a very tenuous segue, but you can imagine that I worked on the culture higher film, and our two main proponents of cannabis use were Wiz Khalifa and Snoop Dogg. yeah, it kind of goes hand in hand
3: yeah I, I I guess so, but then also i mean with within the arts I mean that's what the whole the whole piece is about i mean it's not just i I would definitely say that I know. Like, several, like, good mates who are hip-hop MCs who I'm pretty sure if they got a new track out, it's going to mention a joint in the track at some point. Like, that's just likely to happen. But at the same time, I mean, poets are <laughs> not not that, you know, like, that clinker either. Poets, are, uh, you know, uh, get involved in a huge amount of drugs. Like, the, just the arts in general, I think it's... um And I'd say, like, the world of media to an extent. Like, I just think it's, it's something that certainly... Like, quite prevalent. Um, I just think it's the hip hop MCs don't expect they're going to be able to get it. Like, in many ways, they've kind of figured that the kind of jobs you might be counted out for, for talking about drug use explicitly, they're probably not going to be able to have the qualifications to, or, or the, the chance to go for those kind of posts anyway.
2: And that, that's a recurring theme. Anybody that's set up here, whether it's Rufus Hound, Robin Ince, they all hold their hands up that in the industries they work in drugs are prevalent they're there, and you said the same didn't you, Chris Is that in the media I, I certainly know people that are completely fluent on on the substances that they
5: use it's yeah I, I think it's it's interesting I, I, there are a number of kind of famous examples of people who have made amazing discoveries and, and creative progress claiming to use drugs to do it and i I always wonder about if we can tease out the causality there that there are a lot of professions and maybe being a hip hop artist is one where, uh, it, it, the, the obligation to turn up at eight o'clock in the morning at the office looking shaved and, and smelling good and not, not high is different to if you're an accountant or a doctor. And so it, it, it's just that you have the possibility to do these things. Do you, I mean, uh, when I've tried to work under the influence of alcohol, say so, so the next day, actually, after Cannabis Live, I had to write an article for the Daily Mail. The Daily Mail were very nice. They called me up and said, well, we will pay you for this, but we will not publish it because it, it makes no sense at all. We are unable to understand this. I so need to see that. And, Sounds uh, brilliant. I, I must dig it out because I actually haven't looked at it since. It was total gibberish. And I remember writing this thinking, I cannot, I just cannot do this. Now, that, that may be me and that particular drug, but... I, I don't know. I'm. Always, I, I feel obliged to question the validity of the assertion that the world has advanced hugely because certain key figures took a lot of acid at various moments. Would
2: you say? Can you say that the arts has been helped or hindered or just not at all by drug consumption and inspiration? Uh,
3: yes. I, I. I would personally say that categorically. I think it has been helped in the sense, but in the sense that. There's lots of great pieces of work that clearly drugs have inspired them or feature within that work in some, one way or another, and I'm really pleased that those pieces of work exist. You know, I'm 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 really pleased that like certain artists produce work like I you know, and, and I, I listen to different uh, artists, different bands, different you know, all all that kind of stuff, and I and I watch films, you know, and I read books that 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 deal with with uh, drug use like I'm a massive fan of Hemingway all sorts of stuff like I think it's absolutely and those are a part of those individuals but what's interesting is there's lots of other things that are parts of those individuals that unlike drugs don't become like a brand in themselves that that actually are then like recreated and referenced and talked about so prevalently and so openly. Like, I bet some of these guys were, like, well into scale Scalextric. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, and, and loads of other things. And there's tons of things in your life that have effects and, and that you write about. But also, there are certain art forms where you would also potentially brag about your connection with those drugs because they aren't just a, a drug. They're a brand as well. Um, and I think that's when things get really quite unusual. Um, so, yeah, I, I 100% believe that drugs uh, have been of great use to the great pieces of art that we've got out in the world. And I probably don't think I'd be particularly interested in a world where artists weren't pushing boundaries. Do you know what I mean? Because I think that is all tied in with that. And and if there was a world with zero um, experimentation in that area and the art that would be produced in that world, I don't think I'd be massively... like I, I would be enjoy that world of art as much. But at the same time... There is definitely a flip side to it, in the sense that like, drugs can mean many things to many people.
2: That's really interesting. I think we need to do an episode on drugs in the arts. I think and drugs in Sky Electrics. I think that's... <laughs> I'm up for that. It's such it's
3: just... a bad analogy, <laughs> but um, but no, I do I do think that I do think that like I know a lot of hip hop ems. I, I, I keep mentioning hip hop MC, and the thing is, there's no more so than hip hop MCs than in like the grunge and indie bands that I know. But I know of a, a, like at least two MCs who have told me that they have written about using drugs whilst they've been completely clean of drugs. From our position, it's really handy to have these people there,
2: that, that the hip-hop artists, because they they are going to reach audiences that we can't. Like us sitting up here talking, you know, three or four, count, uh, four white men up here, you know, we're not going to reach certain audiences. And having hip-hop artists, they really, we found, have helped... And any kind of artist, you know, I was, having, I was having a little bit of a debate with Rufus Hound because he was saying, no, nah, you, you don't need him. I was like, you do, because each one of those comes with X amount of Twitter followers. They can reach certain audiences that we can't. So would you reckon that there is people within your field that are willing to help out more on what we're trying to do with reform?
3: Sorry, uh, interested in, in the work that you guys do. In, in, in drug
2: policy reform and making sure oh, that we get a social massively, justice. massively,
3: massively. I mean, I, I've, had, I've had three different conversations with like fairly prominent members of, of the hip-hop community in the last week and talked to them and they've all gone, oh, I wish I was going on that. And they've gone like, oh, I've got so much to And, and they're, they're, they're passionate about it and incredibly passionate about it because a lot of people that I know um, artistically and that I work with artistically, many of the, the, these, the, many of the people I've, I've worked with, drugs have been such a huge part of their lives. It's been almost like a, a part of the wallpaper. Uh, And they've seen great, like they've seen, they've had like great experiences. They would say, I'm sure, and great creative experiences, and they've done all these other things. But they also, all will have, at least one incredibly harrowing observation of something they've seen within someone else, or some key moment in their life where they've really thought, actually, this isn't a good thing. But they manage a lot of that stuff alone, Um, and that's and that's my concern about the current.
2: And conversely, as well. Completely different field, Chris. But in the medical and science field, is there many people that are sympathetic to drug policy reform, or is it not really on the agenda?
5: So I, I think that's, in a sense, uh, I wonder if really getting all the hip hop artists. I mean, I feel I like, like we talk about hip hop. I feel like, like they're. No, in, no, no. But I'm saying I think that I feel like they're probably all on board. And the more the more problematic dialogue is with, um, so a, a friend of mine, a couple senior advisor to Downing Street. OK, the the bloke and and uh, and and she was a doctor and both of them I had been to festivals with and uh, and where they had just taken immense quantities of drugs. And uh, but when you said to them, what would you do about drugs? Oh, no, it should be more illegal, you know, because now we've got kids. And so that, to me, is there's a sort of massive internal inconsistency there where they can't even reconcile their own behavior. It's like, now I'm older, I would want to protect my former self. I mean, there's no way of, no way of kind of reasoning it all through. So those, yeah, I would say there are lots of scientists and doctors and lawyers and policymakers and accountants and bankers who are doing it. I mean, I don't, do we know the numbers for, for cocaine use and how it distributes across demographics because I think that there's a lot of data showing that it's not this is, you know, it is not a, it's not a lower socioeconomic drug.
2: We know that it divides pretty much 50-50 <laughs> down the middle between white and black users uh, and yet we know that black users are getting locked up at a ridiculous rate compared to white users. So we've got things like that and as you said, it, when you get to a position of parenting because I've seen it in my own social surroundings as well it comes from here, it's the emotive position as opposed to the evidence and the thought process. And how, how do we get around that? I mean, Neil, we're always discussing this, and we? we still probably haven't got the answers yet of how we could connect. We need to employ the heart, because we need to understand that this is a horrific set of circumstances, the drug war, but at the same time, we do need to base it on evidence. It's a real dichotomy, isn't it?
4: Yeah, I mean, I'm sure we'll be discussing this um, for the next few decades while we're, we're, we're trying to sort this out. Um, yeah, it's, it's the big issue. It, it's ha- how to... Um, how to make people make that connection between their own behavior and, and and also i I would also suggest that people have a responsibility to society so you, there's, it, it, there's actually more apathy for the topic and, and an unwillingness to be involved rather than an, rather than, rather than the example that you say that oh no we should make it more illegal because of, because of our kids there is that of course, but there's a lot of apathy and I, I think people need to perhaps. Take a bit more responsibility with it. It's in some people's cases, I don't, you know, I don't want to single anyone out, but voting is is an issue with it, and um, and ha- and how we communicate with our politicians and what we lobby about it is an, is an issue as well.
2: So, any questions? Got to be some more going in. I will wipe the microphone again because it's extraordinarily sticky.
7: Um, how valuable do you think that the um, intrinsic Um, anecdotal evidence or experiences are in the education towards children especially because as a primary school teacher I find it especially difficult to teach children about the awareness of drugs especially I work in East London as well so a lot of the children in my class are aware of drugs or they have drugs at home so how valuable do you think it is and how difficult do you think it would be to to appropriate the evidence to bring someone in or to approach that subject? Can I ask a question... Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Like how difficult do you find it? I find it incredibly difficult.
3: And, and why... why what, can you explain the things that are making it particularly difficult?
7: I don't want to divulge too much, but I've got anecdotal evidence, but I can't divulge that because of my profession. So I find it difficult because the general policy is drugs are bad. So I can't step into any sort of arena with my children, especially because they're younger as well. But I've had children that have approached me and said, like, "Sir, so what's cocaine? Or so i 've seen parents or people rolling cigarettes with green stuff in it, and i can 't approach them and have a generally honest conversation with them about it because of my fear of reprimand
3: yeah, and there's that kind of constant like drugs are bad and like, entirely and I, yeah yeah
7: the, the, yeah
3: um, I, I don't i don't know honestly i mean that's all, all I can say is that's something that, um, that teachers feel. All over the country. Yeah. Um, that, that, it, that it's not even a case of people are trying to spread... Uh, we should make it clear. Not even trying to spread a, a pro-drugs message. Yeah. But are just trying to have an honest communication. Yeah. Michael Rosen said a really Im, I, I, important thing for me about, about education. He said that it's, it's so old, it's been going on for so long, that we get into this pattern with education where it doesn't work, particularly at the moment where... Um, There's this old model where we feel like a teacher is a jug full of water and every student that comes into your classroom is an empty glass. And they'll come in and you'll fill them full of the water and the knowledge and then they'll go out. Uh, And that is how it's always used to work. But more and more, it it, it doesn't work like that because no kid is an empty glass. They've all got their own experiences. And you need to be able to communicate and have an exchange. And the most exciting experience, uh, certainly I I found in the classroom, I'm sure it's it's the same, is when you're sharing things and you're kind of learning together yeah. and, you're, you know, and you're talking and it, it's, you, you, you all feel like you're having some kind of exchange yeah. and it's not just a one-way communication. Yeah,
7: because I've always felt that there's a, you're, in a, you're, in a very, you're in a minefield, essentially, where you want to educate the children, of course, but you also have to step very carefully how you word things. I, I mean, I guess it's dealing with a legal...
3: Issues. I so think this that's is where the crime
7: and punishment yeah. model comes in, and it becomes very difficult because you obviously want to educate children on the harmful effects mm. of any sort of drug, but especially like I, I remember teaching a teaching a topic, especially where it looked at not only illegal drugs but also pharmaceuticals. So I had a very difficult time in trying to explain to children that there are pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical drugs that are more than sort of available and ready to be used but there are also illegal drugs and then it, it, it was a really interesting discussion about well why are these ones illegal why are these ones not but it's a very difficult it is a minefield to try and explain so I, especially for yourself Chris like doing stuff on CBeebies do you find that it's would, there, would it be um, beneficial that there is some sort of opening up of the system that allows you to discuss drug use or drugs with children Especially as a, yeah, as you've right. used
5: yourself. So I thought your question was really interesting because you talked about w- about that personal anecdote yeah. side of things. Whether it's you or a friend of yours or, or someone you know, I think the, I guess I, I would definitely favour. I would love it if we could make an episode of Operation Ouch that followed on from puberty. I'd yeah. love to do death. I'd love to do cancer. Yeah. and I'd love to do drugs. Yeah. And I think we would try and take this anthropological view from nowhere, mm-hmm. where we try and put no emotional or moral loading on anything at all, and we mm. try and just give the facts. But facts—anyone who—I don't know how many people here are scientists, but as a, as a scientist who tries to deal in facts, facts are extremely elusive and yeah. arguable. Yeah. So, so you can. So, tr- especially around drugs, where the science is so bad. Yeah. So I, th- I think giving kids a sort of statistical message and saying these things are common, they are harmful in the following ways. The harms are subtle and nuanced and the harms of cocaine are not the same as the harms of yeah. cannabis. They all have the universal harm of criminalization, which is not to be underestimated. I don't know. I, th- I think an approach of honesty and, and, and evidence and science is, is the way forward. I, I mean, I would just shy away from ever drawing on my own experiences because... Even, you know, of
7: talking, course, talking with
5: Neil about, about getting stoned.
7: That's the precise mind that you step into when, you, yeah. when you're educating yeah. children. Yeah. Yeah.
3: I was it's only really able to do that poem once I left. <laughs> exactly, well, precisely. It, even you it, do you, even then, even though it's actually dealing with... The, there's no illegality within it, technically, yeah. as such, but it's, a, it's, it's still very...
7: Yeah. And part of my ignorance, are they, any of you parents... Yeah? Yeah, so am, yeah. how, would you, how would you feel in the sense, Neil, that um, if you, it's a very hypothetical situation, but if you were to be aware that uh, someone was going to teach your children about drug use and they were maybe a former or had anecdotal evidence, maybe personally or socially, of drug use, how would that make you feel?
4: Well, I was really keen to tell my kids about drugs as much as possible in terms of facts, really, really young.
7: I suppose, but you're lucky enough to have been in the, in the field. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, I'm talking... I know it's difficult maybe to... I
4: mean, well, I, I was actually... I went camping with some friends. Yeah. And I told my kids... I can't remember how young they were, but they were really young. Um, and um, my daughter told her friend who they were camping about the Opium Wars... Yeah, and uh, the impact of various <laughs> opioids and and the reasons behind it and everything, and uh, she got told the facts of life in return, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which was made for an interesting interesting evenings. Uh, yeah, it's quite amusing, really. That yeah, that perhaps I would be obsessed a little bit too much about the drugs education because she'd had that yeah. first. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I, I remember when uh, Professor Knott came out with the comparative harms of. Um, of mdma and horse riding and you know as yeah. a parent i was absolutely terrified that they'd get in, want to get into horse riding yeah so um so yeah i mean it's i, I suppose the concern about drugs and the impact drugs have had on people have, have, have very much impacted on my motivation so hence the conversations with the kids and yeah. things like that but um but i suppose yeah i i wanted to get my version in first yeah and uh, i suppose i have a quite a fear built up of the impact of drugs
7: do you feel it'd be more valuable if somebody with anecdotal evidence or experience with it would be more valuable in talking to children about it because i think that's especially from an educational point of view it's it's quite a difficult one to push through your superiors that oh i've got this guy who used to be a user and wants to talk about drugs to children and i can see that being just an absolute like stop right there like I don't want a drug yeah, in the school. Yeah, it's,
3: it's funny, isn't it? We've I've, I've known many schools that have done that in relation to alcohol. Yeah, that um, seems to be almost it happens quite a lot. That you'll get somebody in who's mm. had like uh, who's who's a recovering alcoholic. Yeah. who will talk to the students about the impact that alcoholism has had on their lives. Yeah. Um,
7: because of the I don't know. There's illegality. no easy answers.
3: The thing is, it, you know, I it's this is honestly something I don't think about a massive amount. Mm. Um, and once I kind of agreed to come on this and started thinking about it more and like really considering it more it it just seems to me that you just it's just you've just got this sticking point in the way that people will always you know will adjust maybe over time in relation to but it's it's generational
7: like the last podcast I came to and we were talking about the generational difference that children and possibly our children or children's children will hopefully see through a change So, yeah,
4: I think for social justice issues and things, how society changes, things are things do move slowly like that, and um, they're almost intangible. You know, we spend a lot of time uh, studying facts and figures and demographics and percentages and pollings and framing messages and all the incredible amounts of detail. But could you really account for the reason why? Um, acceptance of gay marriage was, was, was so easy. Can you really tangibly account for h- how changes shift in society? Because I think it comes down, you make a really good point, in that to a degree it is generational, it is the kids growing up and shedding prejudice. Or, or like like Mark said, you've got the almost perfect uh, all the world's information at your fingertips with the internet, I mean, I think this is making a very tangible impact, certainly in in our sector in in drug law reform.
3: But but also, I mean, the the, uh, the flip side of that, and I think it could be underestimated, is that young people are also seeing the negative effects of uh, illegal drug use in their communities, within their families, upon their friends, in a way that a lot of the older generation maybe have not necessarily seen uh, to the, the same scale so I think at the same time a lot of young people are incredibly critical like are also incredibly tr- critical at the thought of decriminalising yeah. you know, drugs and I don't I don't think is.
2: Uh, and there's there's been celebrity examples as well that kids are going to latch onto they've seen Amy Winehouse they've seen Philip Seymour Hoffman and they and in the linear thought process drugs being illegal equals protection and that's the mindset that we've got to try and knock out of people is that that's not how it works at all and we're, we're totally not going to let you off the hook mark we, we're going to keep jabbing at you to do more on this subject because from our position the marketing of poetry and the arts trying to end the war on drugs is such a powerful image you know that that's the way that we're possibly going to get there i think as well as well as having people like neil out there whistleblowing so here's jake
0: oh thank you introduce my name uh, if I may start with the, it's only a short story uh, like you were talking about when you were first introduced um, to drugs as children and the first time that happened to me was uh, like an arranged uh, year six so age of 10 or 11 uh, danger day taking you through all the trials of like fires and what to do if something's stolen and then we were left in a sort of group of children of our own and some of the bigger kids at the school we were at came over and told us that they were taking us to the next section and they sort of walked a few of us along I stay behind a little bit sort of suspicious thinking it might be sort of stranger danger or something and then one of the other bigger kids uh takes me to one side and pulls out a, a small baggie of talcum powder and said well, do you want any of this and being a small scared child i i ran and round the corner found three teachers that had taken us crouched waiting for someone to see if they rattled out like that, and said well done you know if You've said no. You've 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 done the right thing. What? Really? Yeah, this was this was a this was a whole nice thing that every year.
3: Ooh, That's yeah. some Truman show kind of yeah. stuff. That you're,
0: yeah, we were dark days. Wow. Uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, and we four we marks
3: for enthusiasm from them, but it's a bit scary, right? That's I awful. was
0: I was terrified. You know, I was I, was very, I managed to outrun a fifteen-year-old at the age of ten. I was <laughs> I was the, the, the willies were part of me, but then they they sort of pulled us all back together, and I met with the other kids that they'd sort of taken to one side, and they'd all been. They had, like, cigarettes put in their pockets and, and given to susupi- uh, suspicious-looking bags. That's
3: outrageous.
0: It was – oh, it was scary. And it was, like, and anything could – all the other kids being – I've now sat amongst them feeling very proud of myself. And uh, the other kids were all told, anything could have happened to you. Anything at all. And it was all very terrible. And the policy we were told was just say no. Like, and that was something that was perpetuated uh, through Dr. Frank. And the, the policy was always just say no. And then I got to university and saw that people around me were saying yes to drugs and they were getting up and going about their business perfectly fine the next morning. And that was kind of jarring at that point. So the question is, eventually, uh, is there any merit to the, the idea of just say no campaigns to complete abstinence uh, to, for the benefit of protecting children who shouldn't be taking drugs because uh, it may harm them so much more? I uh, I can ask. uh, Well, I'll I'll have a go.
5: There is a benefit. There is definitely a benefit. There is a a number of kids who are protected, but there is a much, much bigger harm uh, for all all kinds of reasons, mainly because kids have the... experience, the learned experience, the life experience, that they then, some of their highest achieving and smartest friends, as I found out, took masses of drugs and were, were unaffected. So if you go to a beta and you go to a rave with 10,000 people and you don't see anyone die, that's a very powerful experience that everything you're being told is a lie. And that's when you suddenly, in your mid-20s, discover recreational drugs, at doses you can't handle from sources you can't trust. So I, I think you'll protect a small number of people for a short period of time and then you'll hurt a lot more people for a longer period of time. Added that- that,
3: yeah, I mean, added to that, you create yeah, a huge social stigma for anyone in the following years who mm-hmm. does experiment with any kind of drug, which then means that their social options become very limited and actually become affected by drugs as well. So, that, so that it, 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 I mean, yeah, it, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of bad... Uh, bad things that are done by that. I mean, I remember the very first thing I saw, like the first, my first awareness of drugs was, was, I mean, it was nowhere near as traumatic as that. But I remember watching uh, Michael Jackson's Moonraker when like, the kids are about to be like captured by the drug dealers and they're all sort of, like, mega awful and he turns into a spaceship and comes and rescues them. And there was something, certainly I think our generation, there was always this kind of like, kind of like sinister thing from the shadows about it and 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 I don't think that that really sat true at all when we became teenagers and it meant that we I certainly would say that when we would start to dabble in stuff and do things we just thought there was no point even remotely trying to talk to an adult about any aspect of it because what what was the point we'd be better off talking to the guys a year above us do you know what I mean like that would that would that would be our best our best chance of finding out anything that felt honest because it felt like there was a huge concerted campaign from all relevant media that would essentially portray, you know, like anyone involved in drugs as being um, like
5: borderline a monster. Really, it's hard, hard to know what else you say, though. So I'm trying. I'm sitting here going, so what would I say? You go well. I'd start by saying I've already said my my stated position is I would tell people to not take any drugs because it's illegal and criminalisation is bad. But then what do you add a little addendum going, but if you do, how do you add that addendum in, say, either of our positions without sanctioning it or endorsing it in some way that will become privately very complicated for us, legally complicated, professionally complicated? So you can see how all the forces drive individuals toward a, a just saying no is, the, is by a long way the easiest thing to say
4: brilliant point i can't add much to that other than or if you, you it's possible to probable to consider that harm reduction advice saves lives so are, do we miss opportunities for giving good harm reduction advice which which may at some point save someone's life because we know that that is one thing that you know that reduces harms is the correct advice for such things so are we miss at the point of engaging with people are we missing an opportunity I don't know th- I don't know the answers in terms of how we educate, but it's just think, something to consider yeah. i think
3: i think there's i mean there's a huge benefit to explaining the 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 negative effects, and I think that's incredibly important. I don't think you need to balance that out by going, but you might have a really good time. I don't think you have to like say like some positive i don't think you have to do anything like that i think but I think when you are literally saying, Don't be informed, make a you know th- it's just bad, it's just pure bad without any evidence. Which I think is something that many people in this room probably that's what we were were really told. And I think there's still there's still some of that that exists. But it is better. But yeah. That sounds so I'm so sorry you experienced that. (laughs) I love that actually. I think it's really (laughs) awesome. I'm also loving the fact that we get moonwalker in
6: here. I'd like to know how
3: they selected which students they'd have as the drug dealers.
5: Did you become the drug dealer later? Like, were you then? (laughs)
2: So let's wrap up then. One sentence from each one of us on where we think we can go. How do you predict the future of planning out for drug education? Whatever you want to say. You start, Neil. Put you on the spot.
4: Well, um, I think we're probably a long way from actually uh, discussing it with the right people, in some in, with some common sense, I, I do hope that we can get some honesty involved. I do hope that teachers can be empowered and confident to be able to um, discuss things without any kind of reprimand, and that there is some some kind of freedom to to, to speak honestly about it. But I'd emphasise emphasise my earlier point that it's very very difficult to educate about what we don't know about, um, because if something isn't regulated, we don't know what the dose is, we don't know the effect, and so. Um, Caution is obviously going to be part of what we say anyway, but honesty would be would be really useful, I think.
5: I'd say we should. alcohol and cigarettes have given us an amazing template for how to roll out dangerous, addictive substances well and badly. And my number one anxiety about reducing prohibitions is getting private interests involved. We see it with, uh, the, you know, I'm not a pharma-conspiracist, but you don't have to be a conspiracist to see the egregious behaviour of pharmaceutical industry. And if... if as we see big tobacco in the States moving into to, to cannabis production. Um, so I am certain that we would see the large pharmaceutical companies getting a hold of um, many of the, of, of the kind of drugs we're talking about or chemically modifying them so they could retain patents. And then you hand corporations and industry, uh, you know, cheap, uh, regulated, licensed, addictive products to sell. So that, that gives me, Gives me real pause. So we've got to be honest about the harms and cautious about corporate interest.
3: Um, I get. Uh, well, I. Uh, you know, what, if anything, I just say, to, just a shout out to any teachers or anyone working in the education system who's currently trying to skirt around this issue, and and try and find ways that they can have conversations that are helpful for for young people in in, in learning the information they need to know um, about about drugs, about what's out there, and without feeling too confined and too constricted I do feel like it's getting slightly better than it was but there's a long way to go I think we all agree with that so yeah if, you, if you're doing that at the moment you know, keep your spirits up you're fighting a good fight
2: well, thanks a lot guys um, it's been brilliant I, I mean, I've enjoyed not having drug policy central people on this because we can just have a different kind of conversation So what I'm going to do now is I'm going to grab Dr. Chris because I've come in now with flu, so I'm going to make the most of having an appointment. (laughs) Yeah, so anybody that grabbed my microphone, make sure you use sanitised gel. And I'm going to rush off in a minute because, uh, yeah, things are going downhill quite rapidly in cognition as well. So thanks a lot, everyone, for coming along and please give a massive round of applause for these guys. So thanks for listening to that one guys, I hope you enjoyed it. I did, as I alluded to. Um make sure you like, share and subscribe if you can, you know, all that kind of jazz that I'm not particularly great at doing, you know, the begging work, which you really you really do need to help us in drug policy reform because we're not getting it out there without you guys doing our sharing for us. So if you fancy giving us a nice like and review on iTunes, please do pass it on to someone that needs to listen to it. Suggest us topics as well, get in contact with us at ukleap.org Find the email support And uh, just let us know what you think And if you want to suggest guests Find us on Twitter at ukleap And Facebook uh, ukleap.org again Just get involved with us, It, it just really does help us And to quickly do my thank yous And this is probably the first podcast of 2017 that we're releasing So happy new year everybody as well Happy New Year to our producer, Nicky, who we could not have done without. He is the uh, the Dumbledore of the podcast world. He makes us sound good. So thanks, Nicky. Well done. And Drew at Let Me Look TV, um, he's going to be releasing and helping us with our multimedia side of the podcast because, yep, there's going to be some thrills and spills on the no edit versions of these. We have to thank everybody at Waterstones Tottenham Court Road as well. Uh, Jack, Alex, everybody that's just really done above and beyond for us doing the podcast it's giving us instant credence to do it at Tottenham Court Road Waterstone so thanks guys and my name is Ad please check him out because he did all of our podcast artwork made us look shiny and we do I think stand out in, in the iTunes chart when I mean, um yeah I'm having to admit now that i flip through a little where we chart but solopistically yes <laughs> I do that um and it just helps it stands out So until the next one guys, don't forget we're stop and search on the Distraction Pieces Network. Check out Dr. Susie Gage's Say Why to Drugs. Uh, I'm a wrestling fan as well so make sure you check out Tuesday Night Jaw with Jim Smallman. And of course the boss, Scroobius Pips Distraction Pieces Network, the original. Um, Thank you to him as well, Happy New Year to all the Distraction Pieces Network. So I'll see you again next month, first of the month, this is our time slot with Stop and Search, brought to you by Acast on the Distraction Pieces Network.
5: Bye. Behind your
6: barricades Yeah, but how long can I stay
4: Behind your barricades
5: Where, where to bow southern streets